0: Hey, this is Andre Butler, pastor of Faith Experience Church. You're listening to the Faith Experience Podcast. Thank you for joining us. We hope that this message helps you engage your faith and experience the future God has for you. Amen. We're going to start in Luke chapter 2 and verse 1. just want to read the Christmas story to you. It reads, at that time, The Roman Emperor Augustus decreed that a census should be taken throughout the Roman Empire. This was the first census taken when Quirinius was governor of Syria. All returned to their own ancestral towns to register for the census. And because Joseph was a descendant of King David, he had to go to Bethlehem in Judea, David's ancient home. He traveled there from the village of Nazareth in Galilee. He took with him Mary, his fiance, who was now obviously pregnant. And while they were there, the time came for her baby to be born. She gave birth to her first child, a son. She wrapped him snugly in strips of cloth and laid him in a manger because there was no lodging available for them. And then in Matthew chapter 1 and verse 24, it tells us a little bit more about that baby. It says, then Joseph being raised from sleep did as the angel of the Lord had bidden him and took unto him his wife and knew her not till she had brought forth her firstborn son and he called his name what? Jesus. Jesus. That baby is named Jesus. Now Christmas is often Uh, thought of as a day where people start talking about Santa and the elf on the shelf and gifts and unfortunately death. but when it's all said and done Christmas is simply a celebration of the son of God Jesus being born into the world and you know I know some people say well you know Jesus wasn't actually born on December 25th, so, you know, Christmas is a fraud. And you're right, he wasn't born on December 25th. Historians actually believe that he was born in the spring sometime. The reason why they believe that, and we'll read this a little bit later today, is that the Bible talks about shepherds being in the field watching their flocks at night. And the only time adult males would watch their flocks at night was when those flocks were about to give birth. And that always would happen in the spring. And so history actually teaches us Jesus was actually born in the spring. So then the question becomes, well, how is it that December 25th was the day chosen to celebrate the birth of Jesus? And the answer is very simple, that the Pope at the time decided to use that day to celebrate the birth of Jesus to, uh, in a sense, contradict or fight against another celebration that was going on at the time. That celebration was actually called uh, Saturnalia, I believe. And that was a celebration that was characterized by social disorder and by immorality. So the Pope at that time, uh, Pope Julius I, declared December 25th as the day to celebrate Christ's birth. However, uh, what people sometimes get caught up in is... is how important that date is, and the issue isn't the date. The issue is the celebration. It's not all that different. And, you know, one of the things I, I notice, I've got a lot of family members who have their birthday right around Christmas. I always feel bad for them, you know. I mean, my birthday is on July 4th, and so on July 4th, you know, people are actually celebrating the birth of the country and all that, and there's fireworks, but it never really bothered me too much, you know, because... You know, people could still celebrate my birthday, and I could just act like the fireworks were for me. <laughs> but man, when your birthday's around Christmas, wow, how about when your birthday is on Christmas Day? I mean, that's just got to be rough. And so what some families do is they actually celebrate Christmas, but they take another day, maybe before or after, and they say, this is the day we're going to celebrate your birth. And so they really turn that into that individual's birthday, even though it's not the actual day. I mean, oh, that, that works. Yeah, and that's all that we're doing. the key for us as Christians is to celebrate the fact that Jesus was born into the world. Whatever day we choose to celebrate, that isn't really the issue. The issue is we need to celebrate him. So that's what we're doing today. And in our country, we happen to do that on the 25th. But you know, there are some people that are skeptical of the Christmas story. Maybe you're sitting here today and you're saying, yeah, I hear you talking about celebrating Jesus' birth, but I don't know that what what you just read is really true. I'm not convinced that there's any significance to his birth. I'm not convinced that there's any significance to uh, uh, this baby being born and placed into a manger. Some people really need more evidence. They like to see some facts. They like to to see those type of things rather than just take this story uh, on faith. And so today I want to help those people. I I would like for us to investigate the Christmas story, to actually go on a journey to see if there are facts, if there is data, if if there is enough evidence for us to sit here and boldly declare that Jesus, the Son of God, was born on that day. And so, uh, and let me say this, if we can prove that the Christmas story is true, that it's not false, that it's fact and not fiction, that would mean that the birth of this baby changes everything. Can anybody agree with that? Yeah, it changes everything. You know, I was talking to one of my sisters yesterday, and and you know, both of my sisters have just had babies. So we got babies everywhere. <laughs> Anytime we have a family, anything, there's babies everywhere. And then we were talking about how having a baby is just as much of a change as getting married. You know, you're single and you you want to get married, and, and you know, and you you're even you're dating, you might do premarital counseling, you you talk to your your siblings, your your parents, your grandparents, and everybody tries to prepare you for marriage, but you just don't get it until you do it. You do the best you can to prepare to go into marriage with your eyes wide open, but even then, your, your eyes are only halfway wide open. You know, you just don't realize how much your life is going to change. And the same thing is true when it comes to having a baby. It's like getting married again. I mean, you had a life together, you had a plan, there's a certain way you operated, and, and then this baby came, and everything changed, and you had to adapt to that. Well, I'm here to tell you, if that's true of just a baby, how much more if God sent his son into the world as a baby? Everything changed for everybody who had lived and will ever live on this planet. But we need to prove that first. That this was indeed God's son brought into the earth in the form of a baby. So, let's go at Matthew chapter 1. And let's establish some things. First of all, it reads that this is how Jesus, the Messiah, was born. His mother, Mary, was engaged to be married to Joseph. But before the marriage took place, while he was still a virgin, she was still a virgin, excuse me, she became pregnant. Through the power of the Holy Spirit. Joseph, her fiance, was a good man and did not want to disgrace her publicly. So he decided to break the engagement quietly. As he considered this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream. Joseph, son of David, the angel said, do not be afraid to take Mary as your wife. For the child within her was, get this, conceived By the Holy Spirit. The other way of saying that is he was conceived by God. Because the Holy Spirit is is God a part of the Godhead team God. You know, God has a triune nature. Is God the Father, the Son, the Holy Ghost? They're all a part of the same team. They're just three different individuals. And so he's telling us this child was conceived by God. Now, that, of course, that takes a leap of faith to believe. But Joseph is is having a dream where an angel shows up. I was reading this uh, last night, and I was thinking, how cool would that be? To go to bed and into your dream, an angel shows up in the middle of your dream. That would be pretty amazing. I kind of told God, I was like, I don't know if I really am asking you to do that. Because I don't know if I can handle that. See, I'm just talking. Okay, I guess that's just me. Anyway, moving on. So... Of course, he goes on to say, and she will have a son, and you are to name him Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Now, all of this occurred to fulfill the, the Lord's message through his prophet. Look, the virgin will conceive a child. She will give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel. Get this, which means God is with us. So what the scripture is telling us, what this angel is telling Joseph is that this baby is actually God. This is God becoming a baby so he could save the world from their sins. In 1 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 16, Paul talks about this and he says, without question, this is the great mystery of our faith. Christ was revealed, that also means appeared, in a human body and vindicated by the spirit, he was seen by angels and announced to the nations. He was believed in throughout the world and taken to heaven in glory. So there it is again, the Bible's telling us that God came as a baby to save the world from their sins. So uh, the Bible is saying very clearly that Jesus was God come in the flesh, that this was God, a spirit being, taking on a human body, becoming like us so he could save us. And I I think that's pretty amazing. I'll never forget when my wife was pregnant with my first daughter. And, uh, of course, we we were excited when we found out she was pregnant. And we, you know, we paid attention to every step of the process. I still remember her reading what to expect when you're expecting. and, And I remember we went to the very first ultrasound. And, you know, they, they, they did everything that they normally do. And, and then they pointed to this little dot on the screen. And they were like, there she is. And we're like, man, there she is. Our first glimpse at our baby. And, of course, now she's, she'll be 16 in a few months. So time has flown, has flown by. But what jumps out at me about this story is that God became a dot for me and for you. The infinite became finite. Spirit became flesh. The Bible teaches Jesus was unequivocally the son of God. God come in the flesh to save us from our sins. And so, and and some people say, well, you know, I don't see how a woman could become pregnant without a man being there. I don't see how, you know, that's possible because that means there's a Y chromosome missing. But if God could create the world, he could create a Y chromosome in Mary. So so the Bible is telling us that's exactly what happened. So I want to give you three types of evidence that prove that this was true, that Jesus indeed was God come in the flesh. And I'm going to tell you three types of evidence because there's so much evidence, we, we couldn't cover it all. So I'm going to cover what I can And not keep y'all here all day. So the very first type is the eyewitness evidence. And in Luke chapter 2, we we read a little bit more about the Christmas story. We had read up to verse 7 a few minutes ago. But let's talk a little bit about those shepherds. Some of the very first eyewitnesses of the birth of Jesus. It says, that night there were shepherds staying in the fields nearby, guarding their flocks of sheep. Suddenly an angel of the Lord appeared among them. lying in a manger so notice this angel shows up scares the the life out of these guys right and the angel's telling them hey god has sent the messiah the son of god has been born into this earth and here is the sign here's the proof that what i'm saying is true you're gonna find a baby lying in a manger Well, of course, the Bible says suddenly the angel was joined by a vast host of others, the armies of heaven, praising God and saying glory to God in the highest and peace on earth to those with whom God is pleased. And when the angels had returned to heaven, the shepherds said to each other, let's go to Bethlehem. Let's see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has told us about. So they hurried to the village and found Mary and Joseph. And there was the baby lying in the manger. And after seeing him, the shepherds told everyone what had happened and what the angel had said to them about this child. And all who heard the shepherd's story were astonished. So these shepherds heard about Jesus in a very spectacular way. I mean, you want to talk about a faith experience. How about an angel showing up telling you about this and then a whole bunch of angels showing up and singing? Uh, They're experiencing God, right? So they run to go see if this is true, and sure enough, they find this babe wrapped in, wrapped in, in swaddling clothes, lying in a manger, which has some incredible significance in and of itself, and, and they say, man, this this what these angels said is true. Now we've seen it for ourselves, and now they go around and they start telling everybody about what they had seen, and this is really the pattern that you'll find throughout the Bible. In fact, in Luke, Luke said it this way. Or he talked about the fact that, that what he wrote was a result of what he and others had seen. He said in verse 1, many people have set out to write accounts about the events that have been fulfilled among us. They use the eyewitness reports circulating among us from the early disciples. Having carefully investigated everything from the beginning, I also have decided to write a careful account for you, most honorable Theophilus, so you can be certain of the truth of everything you were taught. So Luke's saying, what I'm writing to you is from eyewitness accounts about Jesus. And John said it in 1 John chapter 1. We're writing to you what we saw. Uh, Peter and John actually preached that in the book of Acts. They're saying, we, ha- we can't help but tell you what we have seen And we have known. And so you you have to think think about this. What is so important about an eyewitness account? I was reading a story about a young man. And this young man actually uh, was just on a basketball court playing basketball with some friends. And he witnessed a murder. You know, some guys came and killed a guy. And so he and his friends witnessed a murder. And uh, the police, of course, found the guys that committed the murder or they were chasing after those guys, excuse me, and word had gotten out that this this guy and his friends had seen it. So the guys who committed the murder, the murderers ambushed this guy, killed his brother, killed his friend, shot him in the head, but for some reason he didn't die. But he had a bullet lodged in his brain they couldn't get out. And so now he's living with all of this pain. But the day came where they, they, they went to trial, and to their surprise, he stood up, and he gave a testimony. Those guys went to jail for the rest of their lives. And that's the power of a witness, right? That one eyewitness being able to stand there and say, he did it, is extremely powerful. It really determines whether or not people spend the rest of their lives in jail. That guy, he, he, he was courageous enough to become a witness because he knew that uh, this is the best way to vindicate, to, to honor those who had lost their lives. Eyewitness testimony carries a lot of weight in court, and it also carries a lot of weight in history. If you think about it, um, almost all, everything we've read about many of things we've learned about in school, in history, uh, classes are a result of eyewitness testimony. And if there's any document that is strengthened by eyewitness testimonies, it's the Bible. In fact, when you think about historical things that we, we, we know or we take as fact, things like uh, the stories of Alexander the Great. Anybody ever heard of Alexander the Great, right? There are movies made about Alexander the Great. People don't question whether or not Alexander the Great lived or what he did. And yet the, the, the eyewitness testimonies that come from that, you know, the, the writings we have, they, they, they're, about, they're written about 300 years after his life. But nobody says, oh, that isn't true. But when you get into the eyewitness testimonies in the Bible, you find these guys started writing about these things within 30 years of Jesus' resurrection. In fact, Paul wrote what he had to write before even uh, the Gospels were written. But if you want to talk just about the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, uh, not to mention John, What historians unequivocally uh, believe that their testimonies, uh, they stand the test. They are accurate to the place where Luke is is well known as a very intelligent, uh, intelligent historian. He pretty much wrote a documentary of what happened in Jesus's time. Did the same thing in the book of Acts about what happened after Jesus's resurrection And it is without question believed that what he wrote is true. History reveals to us that the eyewitness testimonies about Jesus are proven. That they are strong. I want to look at real quickly at Luke chapter 2. And verse 1 once again. Let me say something else about the eyewitness testimonies of these guys. You know, a lot of the, 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 the Gospels, and we read about Matthew, Mark, Luke, and then, of course, John, uh, they were written by guys who you wouldn't choose to write them. You know, if I'm writing about Jesus, I'm not going to pick Peter. I might pick John, but I'm going to pick Peter. I'm going to pick maybe some of those other guys. Matthew was actually a tax collector. People hated tax collectors. Tax collectors were infamous. People didn't want to be, you know, this is the guy you don't want to be in a room with, like somebody who stinks. You know, you just kind of like whatever. Mark and Luke weren't necessarily there when all these things happened. Mark actually took the time to write out what Peter would preach. Because Peter was the eyewitness. So he was giving the indirect testimony of Peter. He was like, you know, a a biographer. And Luke did the same thing with Paul's preaching. So these are guys that if you were to try to come up with a fable, you don't pick these guys. But historians outside of the Bible, like Papias and Arrhenius, these are not, you know, biblical historical sources. They're just plain historical sources. They verify that what Matthew wrote and what Mark wrote and what Luke wrote and what John wrote were accurate. That's historical fact. That these guys gave eyewitness testimonies, whether it was theirs or it was those who they walked with about Jesus. So historically speaking, if you were to Uh, challenge whether or not these guys gave a proper testimony about Jesus and say, well, that can't be true, then you better throw all your history books because you know nothing about history. Because all of it is based on someone's uh, eyewitness testimony and there is no book with more historical evidence than the Bible. Historians simply say it is number one in manuscript authority. If you're going to say the Bible is not historically accurate, then you're going to say every historical fact that you've ever read about is not accurate. And we all know that that's foolish. So the testimony is very, very strong. But let's go a step farther. Let's talk about the archaeological and scientific evidence about it as well. Once again, we read this, but you might see this a little bit more, a little differently. It says, at that time, the Roman Emperor Augustus decreed a census should be taken throughout the Roman Empire. This was the first sentence taken when Quirinius was governor of Syria. And all returned to their own ancestral towns to register for this census. And because Joseph was a descendant of King David, he had to go to Bethlehem in Judea, David's ancient home. He traveled there from the village of Nazareth in Galilee. He took with him Mary, his fiancee, who was now obviously pregnant. there's a lot of historical, a lot of uh, uh, facts there that really need to be verified. One of the things that historians would do to see if what someone wrote was accurate was they get in the details. You know, it's like somebody who's trying to tell you a lie. you know, the kid tells you, you know, uh, you know, I I didn't eat a cookie, you know, the dog went and got cookies right? And then you say, okay, what time did the dog get a cookie? Well, that was about one o'clock when I came in the room. But then you realize I walked in at 1230 and those cookies were gone. I mean, I'm already starting to wonder about the the story that I'm hearing, right? So that's what historians would do. They would look at all the the minutiae, as you'd say. And if the details are right, that would mean it's far more likely that this testimony that I'm being given was right. And so for a long time, historians had a problem with this because they were saying, how would there be a census where all the known world were told to go to their home? They had a hard time with that. That doesn't happen, you know. And, and, and then they would bring their families. Until they came across a historical document, an official government order from AD 104 that demonstrated this was the normal practice during that century. Then they also came across another document From AD 48 that demonstrated that the entire family was involved in the census. So when they started looking back into history, they found out this event actually happened. There was a census during that time, and there was a census while this individual was governor of Syria. That was something else some people struggle with. Well, in history, he wasn't governor of Syria then. But they found another document that revealed, yeah, there was two two of these guys. Two cues. I'm not going to try to say his name again. And so they found that yeah, this guy was actually governor. See, so this is one of the difference between the Bible and a lot of myths and 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 stories that people didn't make up during that time was that you could not verify, that, you know, the, these places. You couldn't verify the events made up and all these myths and 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 the like. But and when it came to the Bible, all these things can be verified. In fact, if you start looking at uh, what the uh, archaeological findings from that time in history, they don't go against what the Bible say. They only further support what the Bible says. Some people argued about, well, you know, Nazareth. You can't find Nazareth, you know, in historical records. You know, for a while people said that until they found it. They found that it was a very small city. It was only about 80 acres large. Only a couple hundred people lived there. And one of the ways they found it was that there were tombs right outside of the city of Nazareth. And the the Jewish law was that the tombs could not be in the city. They had to be outside of the city. So they always knew the border of a city by where the tombs were. Then they found another document that revealed when when the, the temple was destroyed later on, I think it was A.D. 70, that the priests, of course, they had nowhere to go. So they were sent to different cities. And some of them were sent to live in Nazareth. Bethlehem was another city. It's a very small city that, of course, archaeological findings reveal that it exists, and, of course, it still exists to this day. How about scientific facts? What about the fact that there was a star leading the wise men? I mean, that sounds crazy. It would appear and disappear, and it would appear and disappear. Well, what they found was very simply that there is something uh, called a recurring nova which is an easily visible nova, nova, a star that suddenly increases in brightness and then within a few months it it dims. And in fact, there are some that don't just explode once, but they have multiple explosions separated by months or years. As one astronomer said, this could account for how Matthew says the star appeared, disappeared, then reappeared, and disappeared later. Now, we could stay on this topic all day. I mean, you know, people talk, the the, the pool of Bethesda, the pool of Siloam, all these places that you read about in the Gospels, they have now found them. And so, archaeological findings have revealed to us that what Luke wrote in Luke chapter 2 was actually true. Those places existed. That what Matthew wrote about that star, that's an actual phenomenon. That still happens to this day. And it's just further proof that what the Bible is saying about the, the birth of Jesus was accurate. But here's my favorite one, and it's the third type of proof. It's the prophetic evidence. In Isaiah 7, 14, it says this. And, of course, remember the book of Isaiah was written hundreds of years before the birth of Jesus. It says, so the master is going to give you a sign Anyway. Watch for this. A girl who is presently a virgin will get pregnant. She'll bear a son and name him Emmanuel, God with us. Notice that in the book of Isaiah, and once again, no no historian is going to tell you that it was written after the birth of Jesus. Everybody knows it was written at least hundreds of years before he came. There was a prophecy written that a woman would be a virgin and would become pregnant with the Son of God. In fact, most people know Isaiah 9, 6, for unto us a child is born. Unto us a son is given. And the government will be on his shoulders. He'll be, you know, prince of Pre- prince, the prince of peace, et cetera, et cetera. That was a prophecy about the coming of Jesus. In fact, Isaiah prophesied that when that baby was born, he'd live in this earth, and eventually he would be crucified when crucifixion didn't even exist yet. He prophesied about his hands and his feet being pierced. He prophesied about him bearing the sins of the world. That was Isaiah 53. All of this hundreds of years before Jesus was even born. And Isaiah wasn't the only one. Micah chapter 5 and verse 2 says, But you, O Bethlehem Ephratah, are only a small village among all the people of Judah, yet a ruler of Israel whose origins are in the distant past. The actual King James Version, if you get to the actual Hebrew, reveals that he has existed for eternity will come on your behalf. So Micah, who's also written hundreds of years, he wrote this hundreds of years before Jesus came, said that when this Savior comes, he's going to be born in Bethlehem. Now, once again, Bethlehem was a very small, insignificant city. If you were going to pick somewhere for the king of kings to be born, wouldn't it be Jerusalem? Right? But Bethlehem, And he was able to say this years ahead of time. Now, I remember when I went to Israel, I had a chance to go to Israel a couple of times. uh, I guess it's been a number of years from now, years ago. And there were two places they took us to that were, they they, people, one they they thought maybe was the tomb where Jesus was held after his death, where where he was buried. And one of them was this, you know, what had happened was the Catholic Church had taken it and built this huge Temple over, you know, this this church over it, and it was all gaudy, and they did all this kind of stuff with it, and 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 you know, it, it was it was you know, people were there, and it was nice, but we went to another one, and it was in a garden, and it was just a little tiny entrance, and it was just a stone there, and you could see uh, the cliff that over oversaw that hung over it. And you look at the cliff, and it looked like a skull. And it was obvious. That place that those guys were celebrating, that was not the place. This was the place. And, and, and you know, when it comes to the birth of Jesus, you'd think that it would be Jerusalem. And, you know, the whole world would be there. And, and instead, God says, no, I'm going to put this baby in Bethlehem. Just so I can make sure y'all have proof. I'm going to tell you, years, years ahead of time. So you'll have proof that this is who I'm talking about. And I'm going to have him born in a manger. And what's really wild about that is that when a lamb was born, they would take a lamb and put him in a manger. And Jesus was called the Lamb of the world. Here's just another proof that God would hundreds of years before say that when he comes, he's going to be born in Bethlehem. And, 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 you know, there are actually more than four dozen major predictions about the Messiah in the Old Testament written hundreds of years before he would be born. Isaiah revealed the manner of his birth, that he would be born of a virgin. Micah pinpointed the place of his birth, Bethlehem. Genesis and Jeremiah specified his ancestry, a descendant of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob from the tribe of Judah and the house of David. The Psalms foretold of his betrayal. They told how much money he would be betrayed for. They talked about his uh, being accused by false witnesses. They talked about his death, being pierced in the hands and his feet, although crucifixion hadn't yet been invented. It talks about how they would have a lottery for his clothes. They prophesied about how he would be resurrected. And there are at least four dozen major prophecies about this man's life who had yet to even be born. And the odds of those prophecies coming to pass in one man's life are so crazy that, in fact, one, one, one study said this, the probability of just eight prophecies being fulfilled is one chance and 100 million billion. So, so let's let's try to put that together. If you were to try to come up with that number, that that would be like taking uh, 100 million billion silver dollars and trying to cover the state of Texas. And if you did that, you would cover it to a depth of about two feet. Now, mark one of those silver dollars, you know, so that people can see it's special. Blindfold somebody have them walk around the whole state and bend down and pick up one coin and it be the right coin. What are the odds of that happening? That's the same odds that anybody in history could fulfill just eight of those prophecies. It's 100 billion, a million billion. Yet Jesus fulfilled every single prophecy That is impossible unless God was the one who did it. Unless he actually is the son of God. God actually gave us the fingerprint for the son of God in the Old Testament. We all know, if you go back to solving a crime, that one of the ways they can tell who did something is by getting fingerprints. Why? Because we all have a different fingerprint. So God gave us the ridges, he gave us the edges, he gave us the fingerprint simply saying that when I send my son, these are the things that's going to differentiate him from everybody else. He's going to be born here, he's going to be betrayed in this way, he's going to die in this way, he's going to say this, and then Jesus came and he matched the fingerprint. And God is saying, this is him, this is my son, the savior of the world. That is one of the strongest proofs, not only that the babe in a manger is the son of God, but that that son indeed rose again from the grave and that today, if you'll just believe in him, you can have eternal life. It just blows my mind. It is amazing what God did and revealing to us everything we know about Jesus ahead of time so that when he would show up, we would know who he is. And if that's the case, we ought to do what the wise men did in Matthew chapter 2. Well, one, man, one guy said, I'm, I'm, some of the information I'm using is from him. His name is Lee Strobel. He said this. He said, if you drill down to its core, Christmas is based on a historical reality. God becoming man. Spirit taking on flesh, the infinite entering the finite, the eternal becoming time-bound. It is a mystery backed up by facts that I believed were simply too strong to ignore. And that is very true. Whether it's the eyewitness testimonies, which would stand in court today. Whether it's the archaeological or scientific evidence, which would stand today. Whether it's the prophetic evidence, which clearly would stand today. And those are just a few things we tapped on just in the time that we have right now. The evidence is clear. This event happened. And this wasn't just a child being born in a, 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 in, in a stable and in, in put in a manger. This is the Son of God. That God promised was going to come all the way back in Genesis chapter 3. This is the son of God that he sent into this earth to save you from your sins. There is no coincidence that the most famous person in history, hands down, happens to be Jesus. It doesn't matter what region of the world you're from. It doesn't matter what your religion is. You can't debate that. Everything... revolves around Jesus. It's no coincidence that even now, the United Nations spends all of their time attacking Israel. 500 resolutions attacking them over land, a little tiny strip of land. While they won't even bother to even do one, one resolution against a terrorist organization. Why is everybody so caught up about this little strip of land? You know how many places in the world where people have battles and wars and they fight about land? Why Israel? Why? Why Christianity? Why in our country is everything accepted now unless you're a Christian? Why? You can believe anything. You can stand for anything, but don't start talking about Jesus. Why is everything turning that way? What's going on that all this is happening? The Bible is true. Everything it said about Jesus is true. Everything it tells you about this world is true. And you know it. God's dealing with your heart right now. And it's time you accept that and accept what God did for you. He so loved you. He gave his only son. Sent him into the body of a baby. Not just to live but to die for you. So you wouldn't have to die for your sins, but instead of going to hell and instead of having hell on earth, you could indeed go to heaven and you can have an amazing future right now. Thank you for tuning in to another Faith Experience Podcast. Remember, God has a future for you.